here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. Today our fearless leader Bianca is not here with us, she is in South Africa. If you follow her on social media, this is when we're recording this, so you will know what's going on. And if you don't follow her on social media, what are you doing? Go follow us, please. Today's guest is a very, very special person because she has been where you are, a listener of the podcast and someone who has submitted to Books with Hux. So Maya Golden is an Associate Press winning and Emmy-nominated multimedia journalist. Maya is the winner of the Excellence in My Market Award, Emma, from the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. She is the founder of the One in Three Foundation, a nonprofit organization that provides recovery and counseling resources to survivors of sexual trauma with little to no income in East Texas. Maya has been featured on Bali Sports, Fox Sports, College, ESPN2, 3, and other broadcast mediums, including blackgirlnerds.com. She speaks as a survivor for organizations such as the Children's Advocacy Center, Court Appointed Special Advocates, and Kids Aspiring to Dream. The Texas A&M alum's career includes experience as a sports anchor reporter and a television producer editor, newscast writer, field producer, and print writer. She is a member of the Writers League of Texas, and her first novel, a political thriller, The Senator, will release in spring 2025 with rising action. But today, of course, we are here to talk about her debut memoir. Very exciting, which we will get to at the end. First, we're going to kick it off with Books with Hooks. Carly, will you read us our first query letter? Dear Carly, I'm seeking representation for my 90,000-word upmarket speculative novel, Wonderkind. 
set in Melbourne, Australia, it will appeal to readers of Gabriel Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Naomi Alderman's The Power. I deeply appreciated your feedback in May and have since completed my novel and revised my submission. April Cal Callahan is a genetically engineered, hyper-intelligent teenager, works as a medical researcher in the Wonderkind Project, developing cures and vaccines that might save humanity, when she discovers her birth mother has died of a disease Cal already eradicated. It's 2060. Waste from nanotechnology and genetically modified material has been leaking into waterways and soil, triggering rapid mutation in the human genome. People are dying young and fast from a swath of mutated diseases. Taken from their birth families at age five, Cal and her wonderkind peers work in a strict military-like institution to reverse this apocalyptic trend. Cal, rebellious and driven, is a top-performing wonderkind. When she's not working in the lab, she's running a black market trade with the staff swapping life-saving meds for contraband from the outside world, like snippets of popular magazines and pages torn from novels. She works tirelessly to ensure a future for humankind while pushing aside the intrusive thoughts from her earlier life with her loving and tight-knit half-Chinese, half-Irish biological family. This is until she finds her mother's death certificate hidden among her research papers. Cause of death, meningococcal O, date of death, two months prior. But meningococcal O doesn't exist anymore. Cal eradicated it, or she was told by her supervisor and founder of the Wonderkind Project, Benson. Scrawled next to the cause of death are four words. The resistance needs you. The note sets Cal on a quest to discover the truth about the Wonderkin Project, the state of the outside world, and her place in the chaos of survival. This novel is multi-POV and multi-timeline, exploring intergenerational trauma, complex morality, and corporate greed. I live on the Sunshine Coast with my husband and two fiery half-Chinese, half-Caucasian daughters. My stories have appeared in Australia's Mind Food magazine, the Bristol Short Story Prize Anthology, Volume 13, and 5 on the 5th. Thank you for your time. Can I send you my full manuscript? Kind regards, Chelsea Chung. Thank you, Carly. And what was the word count on that query letter and what did you think of it? So Chelsea kindly put the word count in here so I don't have to do the math today. It is 380 words. So anybody who is a you know true listener of the podcast will remember this pitch because I remember this pitch uh, very clearly. I think this hook is super, super interesting. And so I'm really happy to see this again. I'm really happy to see the changes. And I think this person did a really, really great job. A few things I'll point out in terms of the organization and kind of the technical elements is that the title i prefer them in all caps usually i think we talked about this before the the comps can be in italics but the quotes for the titles that is more of like a journalistic thing and not a query letter thing so that's just something to remember and so the category here they call it upmarket speculative novel I, I'm trying to remember back because I didn't pull up the old query because I wanted to come at this fresh, but whether I, I can't remember whether they called this YA before or not because this is a teen. So this was a clear choice just to call it a market speculative novel, which I'm happy about because I do think, and again, since I've read the pages again, which were had major changes, I do feel like this has that kind of quote unquote crossover potential, but should fit firmly in adult, I think based on the seriousness of the materials in the world itself. So I think we're, we're all aligned there. The hook is really strong and really kind of captured at the top. We do repeat ourselves a little bit, but I don't think it's in a bad way, to be honest, because I do think we have to kind of learn the world, explain the world, get into the reasons why the stakes matter. So I think it works for me to kind of highlight the hook and then kind of break it down a little bit. This person did a much better job this time of being more straightforward about the world and, and again, why it matters. I, th I think they did a great job there. The only thing that I want to know that I think is missing here, and I don't really want to spend a lot of word count on it, but I think the thing that's missing is, does she know that she's genetically engineered and how does she feel about it? That's something I think that's really interesting when we're talking about sci-fi or speculative fiction is the awareness or the self-awareness of our character whether that is known from the beginning or whether that changes through the arc of it that would be interesting to me I don't want as I said don't want to spend a lot of word count on that information but I would like to know it in some capacity I think it's really good I do think the query spends a lot more time on the premise than the journey but because it's such a strong hook I think this is going to get a lot of attention so I'm, I'm really happy with these changes congratulations to the writer because that was a glowing review and what were in those opening pages so we start with February 11th, 2060 and Callahan's point of view. 
So our main character, she is, we're told this is kind of a prison-like environment. So this is what we're picturing. She's outside. She has her hands against the bars and her head is bald. So she's kind of like leaning her bald head against the bars of this outdoor prison. I don't know if it's outdoor. I couldn't quite tell if it was indoor or outdoor, but she's kind of like leaning against bars. And there are the guards right quite close to her so we're kind of she's describing the world describing the wonderkind property what it looks like you know it's bordered with men with guns that sort of thing and so our main character she talks to the guard and she says got kids and then he says a daughter she's sick you remind me of her shaved head like that and so they kind of talk about like what's wrong and so we know that our main character is into contraband and so she says did your daughter get in in this new trial and he says no and you know he's kind of visibly upset by it she says i have one last dose from the trial i will give it to you if you meet me at the car park with some what she wants right so she wants something from the outside and he like tears start running down his face so we know like how valuable this is and so and then she talks about kind of there's four generations of these kind of wonderkins they're all young there's like four-year-olds starting their PhD. So we're, we're doing a great job of elevating here while kind of telling us the plot. So that's the, the quick summary. Interesting. And what did you think of the execution? So I didn't make a lot of notes here. I was kind of, I'm scrolling back through. My notes kind of came in around this, the, the negotiation between the guard and our main character. So she says, back car park at 3 p.m. She says, bring 30 bombs is what she says. And I'm like, you could take that at face value, meaning like, is he literally going to bring her 30 bombs? Because in the query letter, which I remember from last time, she was really interested in kind of magazines and novels, like papers, you know, things that like tactile things. So the fact that she asked for bombs, I'm like, is that code for something? Or does she actually want bombs? That's something that I would be more curious about. But really, I think this is so much better than that first sample that you sent. And, and I thought that first sample was interesting. If you guys remember, I was like, this, this person is on to something. I think this is so super strong and the type of thing that I would definitely want to read more of because I really think this person, this writer clearly took our feedback, dialed in on what they had to do and they executed it. So I think this is really well done. Amazing. And you know, to the writer, congratulations again. This is so cool. There's a lot that goes into making it in this industry and being able to take feedback and improve your work is definitely on the list of the most important traits. All right, now we're going to move on to Maya. Maya, will you read us your query letter, please? Thanks so much again for having me on. And this submission says, Dear Carly, my coming-of-age memoir, Remember This, Remember This, is a dark dramedy that examines identity and race with the sarcastic playfulness of the TV show Pin 15 and the gut-wrenching search for belonging and love is felt in Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls, T. Kara Madden. Half Chinese and introverted teenage Courtney prefers to spend her days writing love letters to celebrities while listening to Anya. This is why the last place she expects to find friendship in her senior year of high school is with a rebellious band of punk-loving guys against her morals. A once nerdy Courtney dives headfirst into mosh pits, underage drinking, and constant heartbreak, making her senior year fit for the films she's only admired from afar. And flashbacks to her cushy suburban childhood with a Chinese father and an exuberant Irish mother, we discover why a young girl would go to such lengths to fit in. Saturated in the whitewashed pop culture of the 90s, Courtney asks herself, how much of yourself would you hide in order to be part of the world? Are male and female friendships created equal? How much danger are you willing to put yourself in for the sake of a good time? And does it even matter when your own mother is living just as rebelliously? Award-winning author Melissa Phoebos, Girlhood Bodywork, chose a portion of this memoir as the finalist for the Main Writer and Publishers Alliance Chapbook Contest and was published as The Rabbit in 2022, Pink Eraser Press. When I'm not working on turning The Rabbit into a full-length manuscript, I am writing identity-driven essays from my home in Portland, Maine, where I'm also an Ashley Bryan Fellow. When I'm not running my marketing business, I actively work with BIPOC writers and artists through hosting events and open mics in Portland. Diversity by being something that I took for granted growing up in Toronto. My words have appeared in the Portland Press-Herald, Copy, Maine, Mag, Omjombo, Africa, and via monthly substack called Coco's Echo. Attached are the first five pages of my manuscript. It would be an honor to send you the remaining pages, synopsis, and chapter outline if you are interested. Thank you so much, Maya. And Carly, what did you think of that query letter? 
All right, so this one clocked in at 340 words. One of the things that I kind of pay attention to is how much of the query letter is about the book and how much about it is about the bio. I'm always kind of interested in that balance. So some authors, especially if it's more literary or sometimes memoir, you know, or nonfiction talking about platform, that balance can be a little bit heavier on the bio side. So this one was about 216 words of book and 124 words of bio. So you can see like the, it was not 50-50 by any means, but there was a lot of talk about, you know, their qualifications and all of that. So I, I think that in this category, I think that's a pretty good balance. And then in terms of the comps, I thought they were, I thought they were really fun. And I think the long live the tribe of fatherless girls was a, was a really good comp there. The, the writer has the name of the author T. Kira Madden in brackets. I would just say, you know, by T. Kira Madden. I wouldn't put the little brackets. Like, I just think that's kind of unnecessary. I would just make that more of a sentence, especially since the sentence is really well written. So it just seems weird to just like parentheses the author's name there. So I, I think we would just say by T. Kira Madden. Another thing I found really interesting about this query letter is the fact that it is memoir, but the body is written in third person. This is very interesting to me because it kind of makes it feel a bit more distant and it makes it feel a bit more like fiction. So I would play around with this and potentially write it in first person, see how it feels. I mean, if it ends up that third feels better, keep it in third. But I think memoir is one of those things where like, this is your story, right? You are one of the few people who can say like, I am pitching this book. This is about me. This is based on me. And then that energy and infusion, you are the reason this book exists. Do you know what I mean? And so to put it in third and to distance yourself, it just felt like you're not doing yourself a, a service here, right? Like I really think you should own this in a way that is first person. And again, if it doesn't work, if it must be third, that's fine. I would just play around with it and see if first person could work. I think there's a lot of questions. How much of yourself would you hide in order to be part of the world? Are male and female friendships graded equal? These are all very interesting questions, but I would prefer this in statements, you know, like sentences with periods, not questions. Ideally, um, I don't know. I, I, I think this is a very talented author. And so for them to kind of put this on the reader before we even know what this book is about... I would really like, again, this author to take control of the situation a bit more, right? Instead of being like, this is third person. Here's questions I'm throwing to you, the reader. I really want this author to be in the driver's seat of this story. And I really feel like they're in the back seat here. So that would be my advice to this person. My only other note is a small note. There is repetition in the author bio paragraph. I don't love the repetition of when I'm not working on. And then the next sentence is when I'm not running my... I would just reword that entirely. I just don't think we need to start two sentences the same. But otherwise, I think this is really interesting, which is why I'm kind of encouraging this author to take more control of this. It is definitely a very interesting premise. So Maya, as a memoirist yourself, what did you think of those opening pages? Can you give us a little summary and can you tell us what you thought of them? The first five pages of this really grabbed my attention. What we're introduced to is the writer, the narrator, in a situation where they basically have creeped out late at night to party and to drink and smoke. And they are coming back from this night of partying, trying to sneak back into the house. And you very immediately feel the spirit of the rebelliousness of this narrator through the actions that are being described. The summary moves forward to what I like to call a little bit of mile markers along that are hints, not the full backstory. We're not getting everything right up front, but hints at some discourse in the family and that there is a move, a major transformation coming up and the narrator is obviously distraught about it. So this was her final night in this town where she had done everything that she could to fit in and made sort of a ragtag group of friends that on paper might not have seemed like they would have meshed together, but reading their descriptions was beautiful in my opinion, because I thought they were all people that I could relate to or picture very, very clearly. Um, and then by the end of these first five pages, which I don't know, obviously where the rest of the chapter continues, but it actually felt like a natural end to the chapter because she is tucking herself into bed after this night of partying for her final night in this house. And then we're preparing for whatever comes with the move, but it ends in such a way on these first five pages that it could very well be the end of the chapter. 
Interesting. Okay, so Maya, picture that the author is sitting next to you in a coffee shop and saying, Maya, as the expert, as a memoirist, what should I work on? What improvements would you suggest for these first five pages? There are a few things that I liked greatly about the the writing and the narration. Uh, I'm going to start with what I loved about the piece and then get into just a few comments that could strengthen it. I really liked the, the description, the introduction, again, of the rebelliousness of the author, the narrator. We start to get this imagery immediately that they're doing something that they should not be doing. And whether you are a rebellious teenager or not, you can picture that. I also liked, again, that there were hints about things about the family dynamic that hinted at partying as being a dynamic that this writer narrator is introduced to very young. And so the fact that they're acting this way as a teenager is probably not surprising. And we get hints that it becomes an issue later in life. The imagery as well, a curious child spying on parents as they're having these parties trying to, there's one point where she mentions pressing her ear up against the grate to the vent to try to hear the conversations of these adult parties and some of it's illicit. I really liked that imagery because what child hasn't been curious and tried to spy on their parents and the adult things that we're not supposed to hear, but we want to know anyway, and we want to feel like a grown up. So I really like that and found that relatable. And then there's a portion of the pages where she is looking at her friends that she's taken eight by 10 photographs of and developed these prints. And I thought that was a beautiful way to introduce us to each friend without just rattling them off. It's like she picks up the picture and lays them out and describes that friend. And you feel that these are kids that are outsiders, they're different, and somehow she has found her place with them and that she's going to miss them greatly. So I thought those descriptions were all done extremely, extremely well. I think the first sentence is really strong and the writer comes back to references of it again throughout the piece. So there's a little bit of, uh, I guess, reference to what you first read that she makes off sort of a checklist from that first sentence. The one comment I did have about it is there's a comment in there, the, the first line mentioned stepping or between the chain link fence, compost pile and corpses. For me, I took that quite literally at first that the corpses were bodies piled up by the fence and that they were near the compile post. So when I later found out that her home was adjacent to a cemetery and that she wasn't actually stepping over the corpses, I don't want to say that I felt a a little sense of a betrayal as a reader, but I had that imagery because I didn't know exactly where it was going. It could be quite literal that there were bodies piled up by their house, especially with the compile post. So I might caution on that wording because it could mislead other readers into anticipating that same thing and thinking that. But still knowing that your home is adjacent to a cemetery is a unique way to enter the story. But that line in itself, it is an attention grabber and strongly written, but it just felt a little bit misleading. Again, I don't know if the chapter ends exactly where those five pages ended, but it felt like a natural end. So wherever she's going with more in that chapter, I felt like it could possibly end there. I do want to know more about the story, but there were just a few things in some of the writing that I felt that even in memoir, you still have to build the world for us because you know the landscape, you know what your house looked like, you knew what the street looked like. And there were a couple of instances when she's you know, trying to sneak back into the house and she climbs over a hill and she There's things that sort of magically appeared, you know, like a rebar coming out of the ground. And then there was a rope from a tree that she used to swing over. Those things weren't mentioned. So when they popped up, I felt it was a bit jarring, like, oh, where did the rope come from? Or where did where did the pipe come from? Those types of things. So I felt there needed to be just a bit more detail in the scene setting. But the imagery of the cemetery She describes very well leaning up against a tombstone, which kudos to her, not my jam, but you know, that's a, I love that imagery of even the sound being in there. I thought that that was done really, really well. Those would be my recommendations though, is just to look at building a little bit more of the setting so that we get a a greater picture of where the house is and some of these items that become part of the action need to be introduced rather than just 
springing up because again, that was my thought of, okay, where did, where did the rope appear from? But other than that, there was only one section that I felt maybe could either be removed or put down later further in the the book. She talks about her memories of life, not just replaying like a slideshow before death, but her memories come back to her often. I thought that that was almost a little cumbersome where it was placed in the first page and that that could be potentially moved down to when she's a little bit more reminiscent instead of that being the second paragraph. I think she starts with action of sneaking in the house and that that action could, should continue to carry us through for a few more pages. The only other portion of it that I had a comment on is because she's doing this all alone and she's sneaking back into the house all alone. There is no dialogue. So she's not talking to anyone. It's only her thinking about who she had conversations with or hearing the adults talking, but there's actually no conversation with her and another person. That is excellent and super specific feedback. Thank you so much, Maya. I will now read my query letter. Hi, Cece. Such a fan of your show. Y'all have found a great mix of positive energy and brutal honesty. I'm seeking representation for my debut novel, A World That Doesn't Exist, 97,000 Words. The premise is loosely inspired by Whittle School and Studios, a for-profit school that failed spectacularly just years after the founder raised $900 million. The book is upmarket fiction at turns lyrical and comic. Think of the humor and longing of the TV show Sex Education. I'm reaching out to you, Cece, because of your interest in wealthy, dysfunctional families, morally ambiguous protagonists, and complex female relationships. What do you do when your checking account is decimated by the blockchain? Your girlfriend leaves you and your marketing contracts dry up? 33-year-old Rafa knows. You lie. Soon, Rafa is living rent-free in his brother's guest room and working at the same private high school his niece attends. What lines will Rafa cross to bolster Blazewell Academy's image while the charismatic founder rustles up more investors? Could Rafa save the school and win his brother's respect? Maybe. If his niece, Luisa, doesn't get in the way. 16-year-old Luisa follows her teacher crush to Blazewell and then onto the staff of the student newspaper. When she learns that an annoyingly attractive classmate has been paying real money for a worthless virtual currency her uncle invented, she uses her journalism skills to expose the truth. But why is the administration so eager to squash her story? And does her voice even matter? My dream was always to be a novelist, but first I co-founded the education technology company Flowcabulary in 2004. We sold the company in 2019 having built a product used to teach millions of students. I received invaluable help on this novel from authors Jonathan Vatner, I absolutely devoured this book, I laughed and laughed, and Elizabeth Weiss, I truly loved this funny, tender novel. I live in Terrytown, New York, down the hill from the fictional Blaswell Academy. Best, Blake. All right, Cece, tell us how many words were in that query letter and what you thought of. This one clocked in at 332 words. Okay, thoughts. I really like the premise. I think that's an interesting premise. I really like that the protagonist has two plot paragraphs, one for each POV character. So that's really interesting too. And the way that the connective tissue between the first paragraph and the second, if his niece Louisa doesn't get in the way, and then we get Louisa's arc, that was really effective too. So great job. I do think that you need comps. You have sex education now, but you know, you need at least two. I don't know that lyrical and comic make sense after upmarket because it makes me think, is it really upmarket? Like, I don't know if lyrical is how I'd use, is the word I use to describe upmarket fiction necessarily. So I would just remove those two words. When it comes to the plot paragraphs right now, I think you're focusing too much on questions. What lines will he cross? Will he win his brother's respect? I would focus more on the plot itself, especially when it comes to Luisa's last question. Does her voice even matter? That veered on existential. And it just like, this is an upmarket novel, right? Like I'm expecting more plot. So I just don't think it makes sense. I think it makes sense to explore that in her character arc, of course. I just don't think it belongs in the query letter. But yeah, overall, very, very cool premise. Maybe a book for you to check out. I haven't read all of your books, so I'm not sure it makes sense. Is The Gifted School. It might be a good cop for you. 
We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word the more writers we have signed up the better the matches will be thank you cc and tell us about what is happening in those first five pages. so the protagonist is in his car outside he has a big meeting to go to and he's listening to a meditation app he does go inside give a presentation and he's waiting for everyone to be wowed by his presentation but instead they are not wowed and as he's leaving, he asks, well, well, I guess we'll have to renew the contract since, you know, we need more time to work on this. And the person he's talking to is like, well, let me get back to you. So things are not looking good for our protagonist. That's what happens. What did I think of them? So I want to say that the dialogue is excellent, like very, very well written. It's snappy. There's banter. I also really appreciated it at the beginning of the presentation, knowing that he thought he was killing it with the specificity of his certainty. And then the surprise of like, oh, people don't actually like what you're saying, right? Like it, 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 it made us feel for him because we've all been in that vulnerable position, not necessarily giving a presentation, but where we're talking to a room of people and we really want to be impressive. So I really liked that. There's also a mention of Zoe at the very beginning when he's still in the car meditating. And I really wanted to know who Zoe was. And I liked that we didn't get specificity. I liked that it wasn't Zoe, my ex-girlfriend, or Zoe, my mom, or Zoe, you know, whoever Zoe is. Because now I'm curious and now I'm reading to find out, you know, who Zoe is. And it didn't feel manipulative or tantalizing. It just felt like someone thinking about someone and purposely trying not to go there because it's a big day for him. So a lot of here is really, really working. 
what I would focus on. So a few things. One, I don't think two mentions of Zoe in the car makes sense. I do one in the car and then one in the presentation, just because that way you're you're lengthening the the curiosity seed. There's a line that reads, he made a bashful face as he's presenting. And I wonder if there's an opportunity to dive a little deeper. Like, is this the face he makes when he wants people on his side? Is this, you know, his wrapping up the presentation face? I wanted to know more about his character. And when they're discussing the presentation, because it's a logo, right? That Or motto that he's he's proposing. There's, the, like I said, the dialogue so, so good. But at that point, this is when the line oh, but that's just an expression. We just need a few more versions is coming up. I really wanted more access to his interiority here because I imagined that he was sweating. Before he had been sure that they loved the motto and I liked that he was wrong. Surprise is great. So I'm wondering if this experience made his interiority less assured. Like I want to see what happens when someone challenges him? What happens to his ego? What happens to how he feels about himself? Is he now thinking about Zoe again? Because now he's in trouble. Like, I don't know. Like, I just wanted more interiority there. Right now, there's a lot of interiority in the beginning, and then it just stops. And I think, you know, you can have less in the beginning and just sprinkle it throughout. So you will see this in my, my notes. But yeah, overall, really great job. Okay, so now it's time for our amazing author interview. Everyone heard the introduction, everything that's so impressive in Maya's bio, and I'm so glad that we get to chat with her. So Maya, for our listeners, if someone were to tell you, if someone were to ask you, what's your memoir about? How would you respond? The memoir, The Return Trip, is truly a discussion and an examination of what happens to a little girl when she develops the core belief during her developmental years that she exists for the gratification of other people. And I will say I want to give a content and trigger warning in that case because the book does delve into some very um, intense themes of sexual abuse, sexual assault, and then resulting coping mechanisms that included perfectionism, alcoholism, dissociative disorders, and sex addiction, and also rage. That's another one that is that is delved into. So the book is really a transformation of when a child experiences sexual abuse at such an early age, who is the person they become? And how do they navigate that in a world where there is so much pressure on a woman to be a wife and a mother and to hold down a job? while they're still dealing with that trauma. And you can only pancake that trauma down so many times before it's like an accordion. You push it in and then it meets its breaking point and it's going to fly back. And the book delves into sort of that breaking point, the catalyst, which was for me, postpartum depression hit me extra hard because I had post-traumatic stress disorder and I had not been diagnosed with that before then. Now we know that it was complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's even a different level of that. But then there is a healing aspect of it. I go to a treatment facility for a six-day intensive and it is my journey it's told through my perspective. I was there with five other people and then the two main counselors that worked with us. But I tell it through my viewpoint. It was my story to share. I don't try to delve into the experiences of the others who were with me only when they shared and I was present. And then the healing transformation that takes place during this intensive treatment of care and then the resulting, I, I wanted to write a write this story, but ended on a note of hope. And that was some advice that was given to me at a writer's conference. Actually, they talked about one of these, uh, one of a publisher of an independent uh, publishing house said that they received so many books about trauma and overcoming addiction. And these stories are so intense, but there had to be an element to it that was transformative. So it's the same as the hero's journey. You want the protagonist, who in this case is yourself, to come out on the other side of something. And so for me, that was, I felt a calling to create the One in Three Foundation, which we help survivors of sexual trauma who don't have the resources to pay for counseling. And I knew that I was fortunate in my journey of healing to be able to have that transformative experience that the book delves into, but not everyone had access to that, especially where I live in rural East Texas. And so created the foundation and the book ends with that launch. But there's also a moment too, where I get to, in a way, confront one of my abusers. 
And a lot of survivors don't have that opportunity as well. And so if there's two pieces of hope that come out of it, I hope that readers take away that, yes, you know, that weight of that trauma is with us for a very long time and it's ingrained in our bodies. You know, there's that book, The Body Keeps Score, and it absolutely wholeheartedly does. Even writing this book was a trial, but I knew my why was to share a story, to share a story of hope, to encourage others. And I transformed that pain into action of helping other survivors, um, but letting them know that these struggles, these coping mechanisms that you face, you really are not alone in that. And it almost sounds cliche. You see that you're not alone. You are more than enough. But that's not just a, a tagline or a creative motto for different support agencies. It's the truth. And so many books that I found when I was trying to research writing about this at the time were self-help books. And I have now encountered other authors who have written this, but there was such a market saturated with self-help. Or if it was about sexual addiction, then it was tailored towards men because it's often not associated with women. So that was my motivation in writing the book. That's where the book explores. But there are so many themes that are tagged onto it, especially perfectionism. I am the hyperest of hyper type A's, which is both helped and hurt. But I wanted to, to create a story that would be for survivors to feel encouraged, but also for their family members and their loved ones to be able to maybe read it as well and understand what that person is going through. I want to go back to when you said your why. I love that you have a why. I love that you're sharing it with us in, in the interview. I think all books have a why, but especially memoir because it, you know, I've obviously never done it, but I cannot. I've worked with memoirists and opening up yourself to that degree of vulnerability of, of exposure is a big is a big endeavor. And so did you have a moment when you knew that your journey would become the return trip? Did you have a, a aha moment, a light bulb epiphany moment, whatever you want to call it? Or was it something that built slowly over time? I guess my question is essentially, when did Maya the person know that she would become Maya the protagonist because she would have to write a book? That's a great question. There's two, two factors that pushed me to write it. Uh, the first was that I kept a journal when I was in treatment. And being the writer that I am, it was really just a creative outlet to process everything that I was going on. When I said it was a six-day intensive, emphasis on the intensive part of that. So I kept a journal and sometimes I would have to go back and open that journal to remind myself how far I had come. But the other aspect of it was that as the founder of a nonprofit organization that works with survivors, I get phone calls from survivors, from mothers, spouses, partners, asking what can be done to help. And the more that I was receiving those phone calls and trying to talk people through, guide them to connecting them with the right resources, I started to realize the need. And a lot of times they would share, they would feel comfortable sharing their story with me, and then I would share my story with them. And in doing so, it just provided sort of a balm for both of us, really. And I started to get more requests to speak and to share my story and after I would speak, there would be people ready to talk to me or to say, you know, I've never told anyone this and I've suffered in silence for so many years. So it was really the foundation work that became the catalyst for you need to write this out. You, read, you need to, to show other survivors that there is a chance to heal, that the pain that we've experienced or that those core beliefs we developed as children are no longer the truth for us and that we can change those core beliefs. It takes time, but we can do so. So that was really the, the catalyst for me writing the book. I will say I pushed back on that thought. I did not want to write a memoir first. I knew I wanted to write a book. I always wanted to be a novelist. The, the book that I have re releasing in 2025, The Senator, the political thriller, was initially the book that I was going to query first. And it just became more and more on my heart that I needed to delve into the memoir story and to write it and to write it in a way that was authentic and vulnerable 
but not so dreary and bleak that no one would ever want to pick it up. So I don't want anyone to think that it's just pages and pages upon sadness. I do have a a quirky sense of humor and it works its way in there. And there's some colorful characters in there as well that we meet. But I did push back on writing it, but it just kept weighing on my mind until one day I sat down and I just started writing. And I went through probably 20 iterations of this one book before I found the groove of what I was trying to say. It didn't need to be an autobiography. Nobody cared what happened to me when I was in the third grade. It had to be the events that led to the past the past traumatic event, the manifestation as an adult, and then the resulting attempt to heal. So for our listeners, one thing that I know frequently comes up when they're writing memoir is okay, I get that it doesn't have to be an autobiography. I don't have to include every single thing, but how do I map it out? So I guess my question to you is how did you map it out? How did you choose the the moments that would become scenes? When did you know to zoom in? And when did you know to zoom out? Because you mentioned 20 iterations and that sounds like you're, I guess, I guess a a pantser in your own, in your own memoir, right? Honestly, one of the factors that led me to find the the through line for the book was truly Bianca. I had taken a workshop with her and in taking that workshop and talking about plotting rather than pantsing, which had been most of my way of, of writing, I knew there were things I had to research, things that I couldn't possibly remember. Like I had to ask my parents, hey, when did we live over here? Or when did dad have this job? So I was doing that research, but I was telling the story chronologically. And after taking Bianca's workshop in her class, I realized that I could take that chronological timeline and take a bat to it. And what I decided to do was exactly that, to show the book starts with the present. It's still 2015, but it starts in what is the present at the time. And then it goes back to the past. And then the next chapter is the present again. So it becomes the trauma, the manifestation as adult. You see the little girl you see the woman she becomes. You see the little girl, you see the woman she becomes. And so once I found that through point for part one, the book is in three parts. That's what I did to really be able to connect with what were moments that stood out? What were impactful moments in my life that still resonated with the adult me? So even there's a chapter where I got baptized in an attempt to get clean because I thought that I was dirty and I wanted to make God happy. That was literally my way of thinking as an 11-year-old child because I didn't have the rationality that I do as an adult. But then you see in the next chapter an adult full of rage because what happened, I got baptized and I didn't get any better. It didn't stop. So part one became that sort of back and forth. And that was really after I took Bianca's class that my the light bulb went off. And then the rest of the book takes place at the part two is at the treatment center. And then the, the ending part is sort of the sobriety journey, the you know 90 meetings in 90 days and the creation of the foundation. So I, I learned that I could connect with a memory and then show how that incident resonated even 30 some odd years later. I think that's a really excellent structural tip for our listeners. If you're working on a memoir and you're struggling with with structure, like so many people do, because it is so hard, taking a bat at the chronological timeline, that's an option, right? Like you don't have to, but but that's definitely an option. I want to go back. You mentioned that you still had to do a little bit of research and talk to people in your life to ask questions about things that you might not remember. This brings us to a really important point, which is, okay, you're writing a memoir and there's going to be people in this memoir that are featured that are not you, whether they were talking about parents or friends or teachers or coworkers or anyone, right? The thing about writing a memoir is that you're sharing parts of yourself that even those closest to you don't know about. After all, you are revealing your inner life. No one but you has access to your inner life. And now your readers. How did you how did you handle that? How did you move forward knowing that that people were going to have access to that and also that you were going to include your perspective of people? Is terror an answer for that question? Honestly, I I did have a little bit of fear in the beginning and I had to go back again to the why. Talking even to my parents and asking them the questions of 
Can you give me dates? Can you give me? And then me explaining, I'm, I'm writing. I'm writing about us. I'm writing about what I went through as a kid, which they know. And then that, that's part of the book is the journey that my family goes through as well as a result of this. So they were supportive of that fact. I did have to explain to, to them, to my spouse, to even my childhood friends that pop up in the book, that this is Maya's perspective of events. So they might have an entirely different memory of how those things took place. I can only share what I remember was said and what I felt. So I had to make it very clear with everyone that I talked to, this is my perspective. It is not a, a reflection of you. I'm not trying to make anyone the evil mom or the you know deadbeat husband, which he is not by any means, but I wasn't trying to make it more visceral for the sake of antagonizing anyone. This was my journey. And saying that though, professionally, especially with my journalism career, there were a lot of people who had no idea I was an addict. There were a lot of people who had no idea that I struggled with rage and alcoholism. As most addicts are, we keep those things very well hidden. And so the thing I think I struggled with more even so than talking to my family and friends about it was knowing that as I was introducing the concept of this book to colleagues and when people say, well, what's your book about? That I was going to have to answer them and say, oh, well, it includes mentions of sex addiction, which is part of my story, and then wait for their reaction. But I will honestly say that I have been pleasantly surprised by the people who have remained supportive. Your friends are going to be there. You know, Brene Brown calls them your marble jar friends. Know who those people are. And those are the people that you need to talk to through your writing process to support you and lean on. And the rest of it, I can't control other people's opinions, but neither can any other author. Yes, it is about me. Yes, it is a reflection on me. But I also have to do the work myself to remind myself I'm not a bad person because of these things that I have done, but I am now responsible for them. And I am taking ownership of those through writing this memoir. Excellent advice there too for our listeners. It's I don't think you can move forward with any book, but especially a memoir, without fear. The fear is going to be there to varying degrees for different reasons, but you you forge on. If it's a story that you have to tell, if it's a story that lives inside of you and is urging to to come out, then then that makes a lot of sense. You've you've written a novel. You mentioned that you have a novel coming out. This is obviously about your memoir, but my question is, what were the similarities and the differences in the writing process for fiction and nonfiction? Because one thing I often say is that a, a good memoir often reads like a novel because you have to process yourself from the outside in a way that keeps the reader curious, which is what we naturally expect of fiction. I agree. I think part of it, one, the the female protagonist in this political thriller is a female journalist. So I'm going to say that I didn't go too far out on a limb when with writing what I knew. Now, I put her in situations, obviously, that I've never been in. But I knew enough about journalism and how newsrooms work and the chaos that is a newsroom to be able to craft this story. But the similarities in really part of it was the research. Just even though with my research for the memoir, it was more on the personal side of things, again, talking to family, getting dates, even finding out my weight at certain ages, getting medical records, that type of thing. For this other novel, I had to research where things are in Congress, where offices are, what things look like, you know, find out. So there's a part of me that's sort of a research geek, and I enjoyed that part of aspect of it. But in doing so, that helps me build the world in both books. And in the memoir, I thought of myself as someone, it's set in Texas, I'm born and raised in Texas. And I thought of someone picking this book up and knowing nothing about my state. How would I describe it? How would I describe the landscape as we're moving down the roads? Because it's a big state. And in doing so, that was another part of it, to look at pictures of the different areas and explore it and build those worlds, even if that never actually made it into the final novel pages. But having just those descriptions of the trees and the landscape or the different types of accents and the way people drop words in different dialects. In Texas, I don't know how many different dialects there are. I'm from Dallas. We don't say ask 
We say X a question. So even something that simple, incorporating that in the memoir was fun in a way because I got to put what life is like here into the book for someone that could be from anywhere else in the world. But also that's part of fiction. When you're building a world, you're building dialogue, you want them to feel the accents of the characters, to try to hear it. You want them to, to see the descriptions that you're putting out there. So I also had to get inside the characters' mindsets of why they're doing the actions that they're doing the same way I had to do in the memoir. So there's a lot of similarities. And as you said, I think the same thing. I think memoir isn't just a journal entry. Memoir is telling a story as completely and well-rounded as possible. Absolutely, because if it were a journal entry, it would exist as a journal entry. They wouldn't enter the world and be in bookshelves and be appealing to to readers necessarily. Although I will say there are quite a few people whose journals I would pay good money to read. (laughs) What is some piece of advice that you would give to our listeners? Like if, if, if you were speaking to all of them, because you are, specifically to the memoirist, what would you say? Specifically to the memoirist, I would say give yourself grace. And when I say that, memoir by a genre, there are very few tales in memoir that are nicely wrapped, happy, tied with a bow and ribbon stories. It is typically a tale of struggle and then overcoming. Those are the stories that usually are appealing because, again, as you mentioned, it is the human experience. But what I would also say is to make sure that you're allowing yourself time, if you're especially revisiting trauma, to pace yourself. We hear so much in writing, you have to write every day. You need to sit down and write every day, perfect your craft, work on your craft every day. If you put yourself through the exhaustive process of revisiting a traumatic event over and over daily, your body's going to let you know. And it will unlock you might have done the work. And like in my case, I I had gone to treatment. I work with survivors. I talk to them daily. I had done all of those things. And then when I sat down and really started writing in vivid description, these things that had happened and my feelings and tapping back into those eight years after I had gone into treatment, I'm not going to lie and sugarcoat it. It was, I started to have nightmares again. I started having anxiety and panic attacks. And I had to learn to take my foot off the gas every now and then and give myself grace. Yes, you're under deadline, so keep that in mind. But it's okay to take a break and practice self-care. Make sure you have those marble jar friends. Make sure you find a writing group that is a supportive and helpful writing group, not a toxic one. They do exist, but supportive writers that can listen to you and your feelings. And that will keep you going throughout the process. But make sure that you communicate as well what your needs are. But that's probably the biggest, biggest piece of information and advice that I would give is just give yourself grace. Don't put so much pressure on yourself to to perform that task every day. Final question. Would you please recommend a book to our listeners? It can be a book that you've read and you're super excited about it and you want to tell the whole world about it. Or it can be a book that you haven't picked up yet, but you've heard good things about it and you're excited to read. One of the books that I read recently... That was very touching. Uh, It is a difficult read, but there is a level of poetry in the prose that was very well written was the book Heartberries. And it deals with difficult situations. It's a memoir. But I found her ability to be able to take, you know, a thought and make it into such a poetic and profound statement. It was one of those books where you read and you, you go, I wish I could write that way. And that was exactly the feeling that I had. Thank you again for joining us. It has been a true honor. And I am so sorry Bianca couldn't be here. I know that she is sad because she would have loved, loved, loved to be here and talk to you. And I'm very honored that I got to do it. Thank you so much, Cece. And thank you for having me on. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. 
Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.